0: One of the great hurdles and obstacles to faith, it would seem, in our world is the matter of evil and suffering as it relates to a God or a good God. And uh, a lot of people have allowed bad things to get in the way or to confuse them or to turn them away from God. The line of reasoning goes this way. Either God can't exist... God can't be good. Why? Because badness exists. And I think we will freely admit that there are many, many people who go through very, very distressing and troubling things. But the big question on our minds this morning is, is God good? And I want to share with you what the psalmist has to say, and Psalm 145 is an introduction to This question that we're going to work our way through this morning is Psalm 145. This is what the psalmist reports. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises. And loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at their proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. For every creature prays His holy name forever and ever. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, as we work our way into this question this morning, Are You Good?, It's not really a question that most of us have to think about at all. We know the answer to that question. And we echo the sentiments of the psalmist. That you are glorious. Your goodness is... is in depth of your goodness is beyond our ability to fathom. So we know the answer to this question, but we recognize, Father, that in our world there is much evil and much suffering and there is a, a challenge... Uh, to those, even the righteous, Lord. We long for wickedness and evil and suffering to go away. And we recognize, though, Lord, that in the uh, reality of this world that we live in, that you are good. And I pray, Father, this morning that you would help us as we work our way through this truth and as we um, load ourselves up with uh, scriptural confidence about who you are and your character, your nature, and uh... the explanation the understanding of evil and suffering and, and a good god oh father we, we desire that you would help us to be uh... those who live our lives out in in uh... in ways that demonstrate your goodness and and that we can be able to give answers to those who ask these questions that we can demonstrate um, by your truth uh, the answer to this question so father i pray that our, our 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 time spent this morning would infuse us with confidence. I I pray that our our hearts would be very encouraged this morning and lifted up as we once again rehearse with each other the right answer to this question. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, you know, this is a question that a lot of people struggle with. I've had this question asked of me many times. People struggle with the reality of evil in the world, wickedness in the world, suffering in the world, and, and a good God. The juxtaposition of those two are a are real uh, intellectual and even emotional struggle for people. And we don't deny that. Um, um, but to answer the question, uh, you know, is God good? Um, the, the simple reality as we think this through is that People who put God in tr- on trial for the badness or the wickedness or the evil of this world uh, have to first of all understand that, that uh, to put someone on trial for something and, and, and to accuse someone of something, uh, they first have to be responsible for it. And so we're going to, going to go on a journey this morning to, to try and understand the nature of evil in God. We're not going to dig into the question of suffering this morning. That's for next Sunday, Lord willing. And so we're, we can only tackle one of these major themes at a time, but we're going to look at, uh, at God, is God good in, as it relates to evil? Well, you know, I, I took a, a look at this question from the perspective of simply words that uh, reflect the character of God, and so to, to answer the question is to, is, is to say, yes, God is good, and, and there are so many reasons, there are so many words for why God is good. He's morally pure, he's holy, he's righteous, he's... He's faithful, He's loving, He's abundant and benevolent and gracious and persistent. Uh, God uh, demonstrates integrity and veracity and He's genuine and just. and, And on and on we can go. We could never really exhaust the words that would describe the goodness of God. And so all of these things are true of God... But then there's the other side of this statement where people say, well, maybe God isn't so good, and the reason they say God is not good is because he displays anger and wrath, and uh, because he punishes wickedness, uh, because he permits evil, because he permits suffering. And so uh, the question is set before us, uh, those in this world who struggle with the question of whether or not God is good. Now... Before we embark too very far into the answer answer to this question, we have to understand that that God's only role is not being good. In fact, God's role is being God. And we have to understand as we we try to define these kinds of things that that God's role really is being God. And and so uh, good is a part of that reality, but it's not the total reality of God. God is God. And so um, some have attempted, philosophically, to try and reconcile these two realities whereby there's an evil, wicked world and, and, and a God. And uh, if God is God and good, why does evil and wickedness exist? And so uh, some philosophers have tried to put together the possibilities and, and they go something like this. Since evil exists and God is all-powerful, he must not be all good. That's the skeptical mind. In fact, this leads us, will lead you to atheism, ultimately. But let's understand this, um, that the question that's on the, on the line here is, is if God were good, he would destroy evil. That's the, that's the hypothesis that's put forward here. And uh, we who know God and understand God and know his word is, the problem here is just a matter of timing. Uh, this is a, a matter that will be taken care of in time. So we'll move on to a second ph- uh, philosophical attempt uh, to, to reconcile or deal with these issues. Since evil exists and God is all good, he must not be all powerful. That's another possibility put forward by people like Brightman, Bertucci, and Kushner, Rabbi Kushner. Um, the idea here, of course, is, a, is a, an impotent God. But, in fact, the Word of God proposes just the opposite of this as it's juxtaposed to wickedness and evil. In fact, Paul, in Romans chapter 9, nine verse 22, writes this. What if to make his power known, God bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? So, in fact, um, and, and we aren't going to take time this morning to dig into Romans 9. I, I recommend you do. Um, I, might take a, I might touch on it tonight when we get back together, because there's a, a, a very important argument that Paul puts forward there in Romans chapter 9 about God and wickedness and his wrath and his patience and, and, and all of the purposes of that, and it's... it's it's not just a black and white reality of, of wickedness, evil, and a good God. There's, there's a purpose and reality that, that uh, has to be looked at and has to be uh, analyzed as well. Uh, but we'll, we'll save that uh, for another time and a little bit maybe tonight. There's a third possibility, and that is this. Since evil exists, and God is all good and all powerful, there exists an equal and opposite force. Now, this is a philosophy that was put forward by ancient Greek ancient Greeks, and, and is the tenet of Zoroastrianism. But let's, uh, let's be honest here. There's a huge logical flaw in this argument, and that is that, that uh, um, God can't be all-powerful if there's an equal force in opposition to Him. This is the yin-yang stuff. This is the, the idea that the universe is, has two equal forces. Well, God can't be all-powerful, so the logical flaw here is is uh, god is is good just not all powerful and um and so there's a flaw in the logic well there's a fourth possibility there are other possibilities but there's a fourth major possibility and it's the one that that uh, believers hold to and that is since evil exists and god is all good and all powerful he can and will destroy evil one day or uh, probably more accurately i i'm actually quoting here so i didn't change it but probably more accurately will incarcerate evil, ultimately forever. And uh, there's a litany of texts that I've given here, Second Peter, Revelation, a number of texts that we, we uh, hold to, but let's be honest, the simple truth is that evil does exist, we know God exists, and so in terms of reconciling that in, in the believer's mind, it, it makes uh, our, this truth, this reality that someday God is going to deal with wickedness and evil in a final, a final way is our hope. Uh, That's what we live believing, and that's what we live uh, with great hope about. It's precisely because God is good, we believe, and is powerful, that we have any reason to hope at all. Bad things cannot interfere one bit with that truth. Now, as I said to you, God is placed on trial by those who have a struggle to believe, or he's an obstacle to believe in God because of wickedness and evil in the world and badness in the world which means that uh, in order to uh, put that forward or that idea forward, uh, God is being put on trial for the crime of evil, for the crime of badness. Now, we have to allow our minds to think this through in terms of logic, its logical follow-through. In order to do that, in order to put God on trial for badness or evil... Has to presuppose the charge that God is responsible for evil and responsible for badness. And so the next question that we logically have to answer as we're working our way through with a skeptic or the the person who's struggling with this obstacle is this Is God to blame for evil? Because if God is to blame for evil, then we can legitimately put him on trial. But this question has to be asked Is God to blame for evil? Well, I want to, uh, in other words, who is responsible and who would be rightfully put on trial? Well, we'll take a little bit of journey into the very beginning. And, and uh, the first statement I'd like to point out to you is that everything God created was good as a reflection of the character of its creator. In fact, very good. In Genesis one thirty one, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. That's an important uh, and a foundational statement of truth that the universe in its creation was very good. Everything that God made was very good. It all reflected, importantly, the character of the Creator. The Creator, everything that the Creator made was very good at the beginning. In fact, Paul reiterates this when he writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.4 and says, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 2 because I want to point out couple of things to you from the text in the early part of Genesis because as we move as we understand that 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 God's creation everything that he made was good then we have to try and reconcile then who is to blame for evil and wickedness in our world in the process of this creation in the reality of this creation in creation the sovereign God created responsible humans to have moral choice. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says there, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, By making this statement, God is already declaring that evil is a possibility. Now, I I want you to keep that in mind because Adam and Eve were created responsible for moral choice. And they were given a choice to eat freely from all of the trees in the garden, including the. The tree of life, which presumably they would need to eat to preserve and to keep alive, to stay alive. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil they were not to eat of. Now, certainly they were not to eat of it then or yet. Now, what the tree of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil is, has been written on in a variety of ways. And I don't know Uh, or pretend to know precisely, I think we'll have to ask the Lord exactly what it really is. But uh, I'm strongly persuaded that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, to eat of it would mean that you would uh, have the ability to discern or to actually experience uh, the difference between uh, 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 good and evil. And at that point... Adam and Eve were created with complete innocence. And if you know, in in most in most ways, although even a, a baby a, a baby or a little child that is not completely innocent because uh, they are born with a sin nature. Adam and Eve were not. And and but a but a child or a little baby gives us a, an inkling of what it would be like to be completely innocent. Uh and, and little children, for instance, they don't, they don't know they're naked or anything like that. I mean, they they one, two-year-old kid. They'll, they'll run outside. They'll go in a mall naked. They'll walk down in front of million, millions of people. They, they have no concept. They're, they're like totally innocent. That's why the first thing that Adam and Eve did was what when they sinned against God? They put clothes on. There was, a, there, there was a new sense now, an ability to discern uh, things, and, and, and something that, they, that was not necessary for them. But um, so in the independent, here listen to me, in the independent exercise of that moral choice, the first humans introduced evil to the world. Now, uh, as you look in Genesis chapter 6, uh, it can be argued that Satan did. It, it, it's, it's hard to tell whether Satan's fall was, was, was instantaneously uh, or, or um, uh, contemporaneous with Adam and Eve at this moment or Satan fell before. It, it's, it's, but, but for our purposes here, the Apostle Paul declares in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 that uh, it was, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. So what happens here is is Adam and Eve decide that they will disobey God, that they will go against God, and so in this independent exercise, uh, they didn't choose evil over God, they chose themselves over God, which is an act of idolatry, and the consequences of that idolatry are evil. So, that thereby, sin entered the world by that one man, Adam. And, and so, um, they weren't offered evil as a choice. They were actually, they were actually offered what uh, God didn't want them to have yet, God's uh, wisdom that he had the right to choose, and they chose autonomy, and then ultimately disobedience. And when we move away, our autonomy regularly leads us to, to ungodliness, now, as we work our way through the genesis of evil and uh, who's responsible for evil, we, we also have to make this declaration, and that is this, that evil is not a thing. Evil is not a thing and does not have an existence of its own. And therefore, logically, it is the negation. What evil is, is the negation of good. Good. Evil is the absence of good. That's why there was the possibility of evil when creation, at the the, uh, reality of creation, there was always the possibility of evil because evil is the negation of good. It's the absence of good. It's the opposition of good. And and, uh, follow with me in this logic that God created all things. Evil is not a thing. Therefore, God didn't create evil. And so God can't be put on trial or blamed for evil. If we're going to put anyone on trial for evil or blame anyone for evil, it is us. It is man. Well, and woman. Not so much woman maybe, but man for sure. There are evil women as well. And evil, therefore, as it is acted out, cannot be destroyed until those responsible for it are ultimately locked away permanently. So if we're understanding what God is doing in terms of the exercise of his power and presence and love in this world, we need to understand that evil exists because people reject God. Now, is God not good then because he punishes wickedness or evil? In fact, don't we believe that that's the right thing to do? That's the good thing to do? Does his anger toward injustice and brutality and depravity make him not good? No, don't we think just the opposite? If God God were to wink at injustice and brutality and depravity, wouldn't we question the goodness of God? Would he be good if he didn't punish, if he weren't just? Now, let's understand the definition of bad. Anything that opposes a good God. And so, God can't oppose himself. Therefore, God can't be bad. Do you understand the logic of that? And so, as we continue to follow, but we are bad. In fact, we are not only bad, we are dead because we are bad. That's what... uh, the, book, the, the scriptures say in Ephesians 2, uh, 1 to 3, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are the ones who are dead because of evil, because of wickedness, because of sin. And listen to me and understand this, that God often, and this, this is one of the things that people really struggle to understand, particularly as we read through the pages of the Old Testament scriptures and realize that God uh, often was, um, gave instructions to, uh, to wipe out great numbers of people. In fact, uh, we know the flood wiped out great numbers of people. So what's going on here? Listen, God often prematurely removes what is already dead and condemned... And destructive toward his purposes to rescue his people. Now all people are dead. All people begin dead. And therefore because of their trespasses and sins. And are therefore condemned to destruction unless something changes. Now let me take you to one of your favorite passages of scripture and see this this reality juxtaposed to this very favorite scripture of yours that John 3:16 John 3:16 you know it you even know John 3:17 but you probably don't read to John 3:18 for God so loved the world join me that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and then you know the next verse too For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. But you don't know verse 18, do you? Maybe some of you do, doing our Bible Bible memory course here. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Do you remember that I said that God's job is to be God? Sometimes in reality, those already condemned are judged and finally judged. And and it's simple reality that God one day will judge everyone. Now, but I want to quickly say to all of you as you sit there thinking, wait a second now, I'm, I'm, I'm getting uncomfortable again about this. That God is incredibly patient when we understand the nature of God um, not he he never brings judgment without great patience and opportunity for repentance and reform God is never never quick to bring final judgment and justice Peter brought this out in second Peter chapter 3 the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come uh, to repentance. Does that make God not good? Doesn't that make God patient and good and, and just? The Bible also says in Romans chapter 2, too, that all of God's judgments are based on truth. In the Old Testament, the time of Abraham... God says to Abraham, I'm going to give this land to you, to your people. And they'll be as numerous as the, the sands uh, on the seashores and, and the stars in the sky. But it's going to be at least 400 years before I give you this land. And then he says this to him, because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its fullness... Now, I want you to get a grip and an understanding of the incredible patience and kindness and long-suffering of God. He was talking about a civilization of people that were completely depraved, completely wicked, completely evil. They were cannibalistic. They, uh, they uh, sacrificed their babies. They were, they were, this was this civilization. And they had, God had every right to bring judgment upon them at the very instant he was speaking to Abraham. But he said to Abraham, I, I'm going to cause you to have to endure generations of hardship, my people who I love, I'm going to have you endure har- generations of hardship that I might demonstrate my patience and my long-suffering and my kindness and my, la- la- my, my unwillingness that anyone should perish. And I'm going to grant the Canaanites... 400 more years to turn from their wickedness. Now that's multiple generations, folks. That's four centuries, but but that's probably six generations where God tarried and waited patiently before before judgment, before He finally invited His people to come in and displace the wickedness of that land. But not only has God demonstrated his patience there to us, but it says in Romans chapter 2, 1 to 11, God's kindness and patience and tolerance offers all people opportunity for repentance. The very people who stand toe to toe with you, face to face with you, and say, God is not good, and rebel against God, and practice wickedness and evil, God is patiently, with long suffering, Uh, resisting the rightful judgment that he could bring upon them. Is God not good for that? And if all of this, by the way, these in Romans chapter 1 and 2, it says these are rejecters of truth. These are people who suppress the truth. And so Paul said in Romans 2, 9 that God will bring trouble for everyone every human being who does evil. Is that wrong? I don't think so. But to all of this, and all of this patience, and all of this long-suffering by God, the ultimate demonstration of God's goodness that goes beyond the depths of our ability to even fathom is that God allows himself to go on trial for the evil and wickedness and badness of people in this world can you imagine this God who we love and know this God who is is maligned by people over and over again because he's not good because there's evil and wickedness in the world instead of putting us on trial instead of putting the world on trial he puts himself his son on trial and his son takes upon himself the wickedness and the evil and the rejection of God and bears our punishment. God punished himself at Calvary so that evil would be defeated for us. The inclination to rebel and disobey and sin and all that 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 is. Jesus Christ himself became the object Of his own wrath drinking the full cup the full measure of God's wrath poured out against evil and wickedness in this world God has faced evil and wickedness God has uh, meted out punishment for wickedness and evil God does understand about evil and wickedness God does reject evil and wickedness he is a good God and he's demonstrated it to the fullest measure at Calvary The one who had nothing to do with badness, he's on trial for it. And the guilty go free. We go free. Now, in all of this, the real question I think that should be asked this morning as we wrap up our time is not is God good, but am I good? Are we good? that's the real question the question for anybody to face is not is God good that's already been answered the question is are we good you see um, for anyone to put God on trial for his uh, his goodness or badness presupposes that they think they have some sort of moral high ground to judge God there is a story in the Bible you're very familiar with it. In fact, it's a story that's recorded in all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's about a rich young ruler. You'll find it in Matthew 19. That rich young ruler, in fact, we get... uh, Matthew calls him a young man, Mark calls him a man, and Luke calls him a young ruler. So that's why we call him the, the young ruler. And he was evidently rich, he was well off, he uh, was well respected, and uh, he was very proud of his righteousness. And one day he comes to Christ and he says, um, what good thing do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It's interesting that, um, that he should ask that question because we know as we as we. F- as we get further on in the story, that we realize that he's very, very self-righteous. He's very, very uh, proud of his goodness. In fact, he really thinks that he is going to be commended by this teacher, Jesus. But the interesting reality is, although he's heaped all of these congratulations on himself and all of this goodness, he has this nagging doubt in his life that something's missing. Because he asks Jesus, what good thing do I still need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus stops him right on his tracks, right there, stop, whoa, whoa, stop. And he makes this declaration, not only to the rich young ruler, but he makes this declaration to those who may have been listening, and he makes this declaration to all the people of the universe, and he says this, whoa. There is only one who is good, and that is God. Okay, so before we get any further into this discussion, young man, I want to set the record straight for all time. There is only one who is good. Now, um, that's a pretty strong statement that's made by the Lord, and a very important statement that's made by the Lord by the way, if you're the kind of person who says, if Jesus says it, I believe it, that settles it, then the sermon's over. It's all settled. Is God good? Yeah, Jesus said he is, so it's settled. But for those of you who may need just a little bit more, so Jesus says to him, well, you know the commandments, the th- things that you're supposed to do. And he tells, he rhymes off five commandments to him of the ten. You know, easy stuff for him, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't don't dishonor your parents, stuff like that. And then he adds onto it another command. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's not one of the Ten Commandments. That's one of the two great commandments. It's found in the Old Testament, but it's it's not part of the the, the the, the, uh, Ten Commandments. So why would Jesus add that onto it? So then he says in his boldness and reckless self-righteousness. Been there, done it, got the t-shirt. I've done all that stuff. Jesus said, really? Okay. You love your neighbor as yourself? Yeah, yeah, I do. Okay, then take all your wealth and give it to your neighbors. How's it end up? You all know. He wanders away, says sad, because he had great wealth. Now, what was Jesus pointing out here to him who thought he was good? Listen, buddy. You don't practice even one of the two great commandments. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. And you don't love God with all of your heart. Because Jesus said, I want you to do all this and then follow me. He says, you don't love God with all of your heart. Because your money is your God. So you're not really good. And he walks away. What good thing must I do? Counting on his own morality. Now listen to me. This is the great faith deficiency hurdle. Somewhere from within us come this idea that we can actually possess the capacity to pass judgment favorably on our own moral acceptability. That's the, that's the norm of people's lives. But unless and until you settle by faith that God alone is good, you will continue to rely on your own goodness to get you home. And here's the problem with that. And Pastor Nick talked about it last week. We don't get eternal life. By being good. There's there's no one more thing that we can do to be good. There'll never be enough things that you can do to be good enough to get to heaven. The way to get to heaven is to exchange all our good works which are as filthy rags to God for the righteousness of Christ, the good God. God. That's why it's it's absolutely impossible for there to be an eternal life unless God were good. Because it is the goodness of God, the fact that God is totally good and completely righteous, that He can exchange His righteousness for our lame goodness. None of it's good enough. And that's why people who have not received the righteousness of Christ, are always unsettled and insecure in their goodness because they're always asking the question, what one more good thing do I need to do? They're unsettled. I, I'm not sure I've done it. How good do I have to be? Well, I'll tell you how good you have to be. You have to be 100% perfect because you have to be viewed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the great and amazing exchange. So can you see how the, the the, the theology of all of this is so critical? If God is not good, then we don't get the righteousness of God. And if we don't get the righteousness of God, we're all doomed. But because God is good... And because he is willing to commute our punishment and our sins by granting us the righteousness of Christ, we can have forgiveness and eternal life. And that young man chose money over eternal life. Now, this is not a le- that's not a lesson, by the way, on stewardship and finances and all of that. This is a lesson on idolatry and self-righteousness and it is the hurdle and obstacle to people coming to faith in God the reason that people can stand boldly in your face and say God is not good because there's evil and wickedness is because they are relying on their own goodness and self-righteousness and until a person exchanges their own goodness for God's And their own idols for God alone, they will continue to trust in their own ability to be good, to question the goodness of God, which is to prop up their own deficiencies, and to feel deficient in spiritual confidence. But there is a better way, and that is to give your life over to Christ and receive the exchange of his righteousness for your self-righteousness that will never be good enough. That's the gospel message. Our Father and our God, we pray and thank you this morning for your great love for us and how you have blessed us and how you love us and how good you are. And oh God, we just want to rejoice and thank you for your goodness. Your goodness in salvation. We praise you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. I just thought it would be really important and really good before we finally sing our last uh, song of encouragement and and praise this morning is to remind ourselves by testimony of, of just how good God has been to us. You know, last Sunday night we got to uh, gather together and, and uh, celebrate and praise God in the annual celebration. But but you know, really, seven hundred of you weren't there at that particular celebration. So you maybe don't know of the great things that God has been doing around here. And I just think it's really important for us. Uh, to tell each other of the goodness of God and to, and to encourage one another of how good God is to us. So let me just give you a, a fast-paced um, presentation that was, was given to us about how, what God has been doing around here. Some of the ministry highlights uh, of this past year, 2014. We had 39 baptisms. Over the past three years, do you realize we've had 150 baptisms? A 10% increase in Sunday morning attendance. 300 drivers, over 300 drivers came to our fire up the grill. 477 people are in discipling small communities. That's 71% of our membership. 160 Decisions for Christ at our summer children's programs. 300 people trained in personal evangelism last year. 180 teams served by 44 leaders every week. Two students, Mission trips, nine student baptisms, eight student DCs, over 60 young adults weekly on Thursday nights, and 50-plus and UIT Chinese students meeting for a weekly Bible study, 80 UIT international students hosted for Christmas dinner, 165 people weekly at our Five Alive, 70 people met weekly at C- uh, CR. CR. 130 retirees, 107 benevolence requests, 20 people serving in our care for shut-ins, 300 women involved in weekly Bible studies, 280 men who attended a dinner that we had, 250 people are working together in our our, uh, worship and technical arts department. Over 6,700 people heard the gospel through worship outreach events here at Calvary Baptist Church. Three interns were developed last year. Calvary missionaries were commissioned, Graydon and Sarah Baker, Chris and Karen Ball, the Haitian church. We had the joy of being able to purchase 301 Rosal with the generous givings of God's people here, over $400,000 in paycheck Sunday, and we received $3 million last year from God, which is a million dollars more than we budgeted at the beginning of the year. God has been amazingly good to us. It's just incredible what God has done. That's just in one year. That's just in one year. God is giving and giving and giving. And I believe with my whole heart that God continues to entrust us with uh, greater ministry. The, the Word of God says those who've been faithful in a little will be f- faithful in much and will be granted an opportunity to be faithful in much. Do you see? Do you see what God is doing here among us in these years? How He is moving and, and helping us? Are we paying attention to what God is doing? Uh, He's entrusting us, I believe, to another level of ministry, as he always does. Uh, We're only limited by our own faithfulness to God. You realize that? Uh, God's a limitless God. God's a a God with a limitless vision. it's, It's all about the faithfulness of God's people. And our field has been made bigger by God. As we, as we rehearse with each other the goodness of what God has done, it, it just tells us that, that God keeps making our field, our mission field, our responsibility, our vineyard, if you will, a, a bigger and more um, incredibly exciting reality of expanding these opportunities. And um, I think we all are noticing in our world uh, that the alternative uh, is morally bleak and bankrupt and increasingly so i I think all of us can see the exponential uh... decline in in the morality around us and the great need that people have for the great message of christ's truth i i think you'll agree with me that the agenda is zealous on the other side it's in fact fundamentalism of immorality ideology and idolatry we know all of that is true and and so god has brought us together drawn us all together uh, for a specific mission, in a specific time, in a specific place. And if not churches like us, who will take this message with zeal and vigor and passion? If, if not now, when? And so I, I believe that, that God is really sending us a message of his enablement, his ability and remind us, listen, I, I can take care of this. I, I can do great and powerful things. I can do great and mighty things if you want to trust in me. Well, more ministry means really to all of us more sacrifice and more commitment. It really does. God's calling on us. He's going to enable us. But it really means more zeal and, and more passion and, and, and more of our pouring our lives into this ministry, which means more commitment to service, giving of ourselves. So many of you are giving. We need everybody. We need all hands on deck. Uh, God, is, is uh, God is expanding the opportunities. God is expanding the responsibility in terms of our investment financially. We, we, we are, are, are moving forward by faith with a 10% increase this year, over last year. We are believing that God wants us to do that. And, and uh, it's aggressive, uh, but we believe that God is limitless and faithful to us. But that means each of us have to participate in that. And what does that really look like? Well, it, it, it really is quite simple. We need you to do what you did last year and 10% more. What does that really look like in, in real truth? It, it means from person to person about 7 to $10 more every week. And what does that look like? Well, maybe you can sacrificially find your way... Uh hope there are no starbucks owners here but that's about two starbucks a week you know it's like you you look at your life and you say what can i do to sacrifice what could i do each week to to advance to move forward to the next level that god is 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 giving us as a great vision well that's what it looks like its it's what should i sacrifice that i'm currently doing that that would be about seven to ten dollars a week and if we all did that then we meet the, the responsibilities that are before us. And, and if God burdens our hearts to do that and zealously moves us forward, we'll have great reports about 2015. We know that. And it wouldn't it be great if, if, if God would put it on our hearts again this year to, to take a big bite out of that mortgage like we did last year? I mean, uh, to, to, to have God abundantly give you a million dollars more than you even budgeted last year is, is beyond amazement. We haven't begun to think Fathom the depths of God's willingness and goodness to us if we would just take him up on it I can tell you I can testify personally That God will always expand your vision and he will always Enable you to be Energetic and limitless in your own personal vision as you expand your commitment to God's work I can tell you by testimony that that's the truth You can never outgive God in in your finances, in your time, in your energy, ever. He will always enable you and zealously enable you to serve the great vision of God. And we have a great vision here and a great opportunity and a great moment. And I just trust that we'll take God up on it. Is God good? Yes, he is. And he invites you to receive his goodness in exchange with the self-righteousness you might be trying to rely upon. He invites you, this is the great message of this, of this uh, moment, is that God, our good God, invites you to make an exchange, your so-called goodness, which will never be good enough, for the righteousness of Christ. And in that exchange, God receives you as his child and will take you to be with him forever forever. That answers the rich young man's question. And one day, God is going to shut all of the evil and wickedness and rebellion against God away forever so that it will be gone, never to return. So today is a day of salvation. If you have never invited Christ to have your life, then today's the day to do that. Our Father, I pray and thank you. Thank you for your goodness. If it weren't for your goodness, we would all be doomed. But because of your goodness and your willingness to give us the righteousness of Christ as a gift of salvation, we have our sins forgiven and are called into your family and received into the presence of a holy God who must ultimately shut evil out of his presence forever. So God, you will deal with it. You have dealt with it. And we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.